Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block. We have a very exciting episode of the show for you today with Tim Copeland, our crypto czar, on the show today to talk about everything that's happening with this little thing you might have heard of, ETH, Ethereum. But before we dive into that and more, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. What's next for digital currency after a brutal 2022? While the core promise of crypto hasn't changed, digital currency is still forming the base layer for a new global commerce infrastructure. From merchants at the point of sale to corporations that want to pay suppliers and even employees more efficiently. Circle has always seen itself as a connector of the traditional world and the new world of digital currency. It's like building houses. What's the foundation and can you get the foundation right? Throughout Q1, I'm happy to host leaders from Circle here on The Scoop to give listeners the chance to hear how one of crypto's most prominent builders is paving the way for digital currency utility. Visit circle.com scoop for more information. This show is sponsored in part by CleanSpark, America's Bitcoin miner. With CleanSpark, you can feel good about investing in the Bitcoin ecosystem because CleanSpark uses low-carbon energy for their Bitcoin mining data centers and is always optimizing their operations to increase energy efficiency and reduce e-waste, all while partnering with the communities they operate in. If you want to support the future of Bitcoin while also supporting the environment, visit www.cleanspark.com to learn more about the CleanSpark way. Tim, you've been busy over there. Talk a little bit about what you've been focusing on the past few weeks. I mean, well, the big story has been the Chappella upgrade. Obviously, it went pretty successfully. And it's very interesting that in many ways, it was kind of almost a non-event in terms of like it happened and nothing happened. You know, everything worked, everything went smoothly. There was no massive, crazy amount of withdrawals, no massive price action. It's come and gone. Can you walk us through exactly what it was meant to achieve? How does it sort of fit into the broader scaling effort? Sure. So this upgrade was basically the second part of Ethereum's big transition from proof of work to proof of stake. When we had the merge, that basically transitioned Ethereum to proof of stake. So you can now stake your coins, but there was a catch. At that point, you couldn't unstake your coins. It was kind of a one-way system. And with proof of stake, blockchains, you expect to have both functionalities. And they chose initially to not bring in withdrawals in order just to kind of reduce the complexity for the merge, since it was already a pretty difficult endeavor. And the idea was just to have a bit of a buffer period and then introduce them at a later date. And that's what they've done with Chappella. Following the upgrade, anyone can now stake their Ether and they can now withdraw their Ether. And it just kind of creates a much more harmonious system and a much more kind of liquid system where you can move around between your ether, your staked ether, your liquid staking derivatives, you know, that should like bring the pegs. I mean, I'm sure the pegs are already much closer for the derivatives and just kind of creates just a much healthier market. So ETH was basically Hotel California before this. It was a bit of a one-way system, yeah. Yeah. And how has Kraken sort of played like an outsized role in this story? So one of the big things everyone's kind of noticed is there hasn't been a big surge in kind of people wanting to withdraw their staked ether. But the one case where there has been a significant amount of withdrawals is Kraken. They're basically one of the largest entities that are exiting their validators and withdrawing their staked ETH. And the reason why is because they were facing or are facing regulatory action 
in terms of their staking service. Essentially, they've come under pressure. The idea is that they're operating in security by offering staking as a centralized provider. At least that's what the US regulators allege. And then as a result, they are stopping that service, which means ultimately they have to unstake their ETH and effectively just give it back to their customers as just normal Ether. I think this is where there's a bit of a distinction between kind of withdrawals and selling. I think in this case, all it means is they're having to unstake their clients' Ether and give it back to their clients' Ether. And then it's up to their clients what they want to do with it. And potentially they might go to other providers and stake elsewhere. Yeah, but where can they really go? Anywhere. I mean, Coinbase, you can stake your ETH. Obviously, they've kind of changed their language a little bit following the Kraken case, but you can stake there. You can also go to like protocols directly. I mean, Lido Finance, obviously, there's like multiple liquid staking protocols. But yeah, you, you can either just stake your ETH through one of those protocols or through some of the centralized providers that offer these services. So what's the next big thing to happen post-merge? This is kind of the biggest upgrade that we've seen. What's coming next? This is where it gets more complicated. So beyond this, this was kind of the big main transition on the layer one network. There's kind of two things, kind of two ways it's going to kind of develop going forward. One, there'll be more changes to the base layer. And these are those complicated like dank sharding and just other like very technical changes that are designed just to kind of make these gradual improvements, improve things like data availability and that kind of thing. And then the second element is that there'll be changes in terms of like layer twos and the kind of scaling networks and the interactions between the layer twos and Ethereum. So it's kind of, I guess, scaling or improving the base layer while also kind of improving and scaling the layers built on top of Ethereum. And I think that both of those are are really important in terms of how Ethereum, the whole ecosystem, develops. I think the surge comes next. It's the surge, the verge, the purge, then the splurge. Yeah, it might well be. That is definitely not my expertise in knowing all of those terms, but we did do a good piece on it. I think someone memed this on Twitter. I think it was carbon-based that kind of it makes the industry seem like a Dr. Seuss novel. Yeah. Personally, I don't think it's particularly that helpful just because they're not very descriptive. Like with proof of stake, you know, you kind of know you're moving to a proof of stake system. Obviously, I guess the merge like didn't. But I mean, the merge in itself was descriptive, whereas like the splurge and the purge and everything, it's catchy, but it's not crazy helpful. So what other stories have come out of this? What should we expect in the near term? It just seems almost like business as usual, stable, nothing really went wrong. Technology-wise, I think there's not a lot coming out of it. I think in terms of like kind of Ethereum tokenomics, some of the biggest things to watch are like the kind of balance between people withdrawing and between people staking their Ether. Like right now, we're seeing, you know, there are kind of significant withdrawals, but I mean, they're kind of shrinking and shrinking as kind of everyone who's been wanting to withdraw for the last like six, six months or whatever is kind of withdrawing kind of quickly. Maybe they want to, you know, they're arbitraging or that kind of thing, or they have to get out for another reason, like Kraken. And that appears to be kind of fading away. And then you're starting to see kind of big kind of increases in deposits as people know it's a system where they can get in and out of when they want at the moment. So watching the balance between those two, I think is going to be quite interesting going forward. Does Ethereum find a nice, healthy equilibrium? 
I think that would be a key thing. At the moment, it doesn't seem to be affecting the market. Obviously, there's potential there to say if like everyone suddenly withdraw their state ether just to sell it, you know, there's potential impacts on the market. But I mean, right now, we're not seeing much impact for that. Some of the interesting stuff, though, is to do with the liquid staking derivatives. Because you had some that were even below their notional value very recently, I think even might potentially still be. And that's given, you know, some market traders arbitrage opportunities to take advantage of. So how does the trade work? Basically, these are derivative tokens. So it's a derivative backed by the underlying asset. If we just start with the kind of one-to-one derivatives at the moment, you can just basically check the price of the asset versus the price of the derivative. And if they're not one-to-one, you've got a potential arbitrage opportunity by buying one unstaking or staking and then selling it in the alternative version. But it does get a little bit more complicated than that because we've got different types of liquid staking derivatives. You basically have like rebasing and non-rebasing. So in one type, basically when you hold your derivative, you get additional tokens to reflect your kind of staking rewards. But in the other type, you won't get additional rewards, but the value of your derivative will increase. So for example, that's the case with Steph. So like one Steph doesn't equal the price of one ETH because it includes the staking rewards generated up until that point. So this is why you don't like kind of compare these derivatives necessarily just against Ether. You need to compare them against their notional value, i.e. what's the value of the underlying asset, including the rewards. And you need to get that data before you can truly understand like the arbitrage opportunities. How popular is this trade? Is this a retail play or are these institutional folks doing this? Where are you even tracking this? So this is more from just conversations I've had. Is this what you're doing, Tim? No, I don't have the money for this. At some point, Steph went down to like 0.9. Was it 0.94 at one point? Giving you a 6% or 7% arbitrage. But like over the last like few months, as we got closer to withdrawals, the pegs got a lot closer. But you still had things like CBF, which is like Coinbase and Stake D's, trading, I think, a percentage point or less below its notional value, which gives you about a percentage gain for that trade, but only in terms of like number of ETH. So that's one thing to be important here. It's not like increase your dollars trade. Basically, it's a way to get more ETH. So if you just want more ETH exposure, it's a way potentially to kind of boost it by 1%. At least that's what that arbitrage trade can offer. The core promise of crypto hasn't changed. Stablecoins can bring faster payments at internet scale, from merchants at the point of sale to corporations that want to pay suppliers or even employees more efficiently. Circle has always seen itself as a connector of the traditional world and the new world of digital currency. USDC is more than just a stablecoin. USDC is also an open source platform. When our transactions are actually final and you can't change them anymore, that's another great quality property of cash because when you switch his hand, it's final. Right? Can you digitize all those good quality properties and bring that in a digital form? USDC by Circle is at the forefront of this innovation. And that's why The Scoop is partnering with the folks at Circle to tell you guys why and how our industry is moving. A lot of us who have built USDC, myself included and Jeremy included, we are technologists. So we approach this problem from a technology point of view. Visit circle.com scoop for more information. Here's a message from our sponsor, CleanSpark. CleanSpark is a NASDAQ-listed company that mines Bitcoin. Basically, they build and operate data centers with tens of thousands of computers that help secure Bitcoin, making it more reliable and secure for anybody, anywhere to use. 
These computers require a lot of energy, but that's why CleanSpark predominantly uses low carbon energy to power their machines. But that's not all. They care about the communities where their data centers are located. They create jobs, donate to schools and community centers, and revitalize aging electricity grids in rural parts of America. They aren't just a Bitcoin miner. They're one of the most efficient and sustainable Bitcoin miners in America. Visit www.cleanspark.com to learn more. Tim, can I pick your brain a little bit about your view on AI and journalism? Sure. So what's your view on AI and journalism? <laughs> I mean, to start with, it's inevitable. It's clear it's going to happen. The question is how it happens and how soon it happens. One thing that we're seeing is it's a hot topic among news organizations. So I think Bloomberg put out a statement, I think, just this week saying how they're integrating, I think it was AI, potentially like their version of ChatGPT or something like that. Today, we just had CoinDesk put out a statement saying that they've set forth their policies on using AI. And we've obviously had internal discussions here about how we're going to use AI. I think if you read those pieces, you realize that actually it's not as helpful in the newsroom as you might think. There's kind of like two ways of seeing it. Like, if you look at the benefits of AI, there's a lot of potential in terms of speed. And in my view, also automation. Like if you can kind of automate your processes and integrate AI through that, you can end up being incredibly fast. But the disadvantage is that AI is not a journalist. And when you're a news organization, like your reputation is one of the most important things. And every, like every sentence you write generally is just purely a factual statement and has to be verified and accurate. AI doesn't kind of have that mindset necessarily for like everything it writes. It's just more kind of piecing things together and kind of giving you what you want to hear. And then one of the key things that we've seen on companies putting their statements out publicly is they're saying AI is not a replacement for journalists. It's more like a tool that's kind of at the moment equivalent to like an intern where basically it spits out a copy, but you have no idea if it's reliable. You have no idea if it's accurate, trustworthy. And then you, as an editor, have to go through this copy and verify everything. Isn't that the same as going through an intern's copy? Or just someone who's maybe not as seasoned as a journalist? It's, it's almost like dealing with an intern in that sense. That's exactly what Coindesk said. It's very much kind of like an intern, but... Like if you had a journalist intern and they've done some journalism training, they'll know to be looking to kind of fact check a lot of what they're doing. But with the AI, you just don't know if anything necessarily is correct. You kind of have to check absolutely everything. And like the advantages are supposed to be time-saving. But if you have to spend more time editing than you would a normal journalist, that could undermine all of the advantages. So right now, it seems like a great idea, but it's not quite as great as it sounds. But obviously, this is very likely to change in the near future. AI is evolving at a rapid clip. I think you'll definitely see a lot of low-quality news sites integrating AI potentially just because a lot of them, like they churn out stories and they care more about volume than necessarily accuracy if they're not like a reputation-based site. And then I think it will slowly work its way up towards reputation you know, the bigger news organizations as they realize they have to kind of do this to compete. But I think they'll be slower and more focused on journalistic accuracy. Yeah, so I think that, that's how it will develop over time. How have you been using it in your day-to-day? -day? 
I haven't been using it, but I have been experimenting with it and testing potential kind of workflows for how we could integrate it in the newsroom. Right now, it's all kind of limited to just the app itself. There are kind of integrations and stuff, but right now they're still like relatively limited. So it is definitely just kind of very early days. But yeah, I don't think it'll be very long before it's just kind of everything has an AI kind of extension that you can just kind of add in and then kind of send content through that and have it spit out content out the other end. I guess there's also some security concerns. I thought one cool use case would be you get an embargo, you spit it into the AI and ask it, what question should I ask the CEO of this company as it pertains to this news? And you get like a basic set of questions to help you kind of like ideate. But on the flip side of that, there's a concern that you're kind of putting it into this system. You don't know who's necessarily running it or who could have access to it. And that's like almost an ethical concern, I guess. Yeah, so we've had those concerns. I think Coindesk said the same thing, I believe. Someone definitely mentioned that ChatGPT is manually reviewed. Obviously, maybe not for everything, but in certain cases, which just means there's potential for embargoed information to get out there. And that's just something that's not acceptable for a news organization. So it's just not really an option. However, I think that there's definitely like potential kind of internal, if you have like an internal AI, obviously that's a little bit different. And perhaps like Bloomberg, because I think they said they're building their own version. That's kind of like an in-house one. If you're doing that, then it might be possible that you, it is a closed system, you know nobody else has access, and then you can throw embargoes through that. When are we building ours? Uh, you'd have to ask Larry. He like wrote a prompt designed to sort of write out articles. He did it like for fun in his spare time. But that's going to be like a job. Maybe already is, the prompt writer. Or they call them prompt engineers. I think so. And I think, you know, I wouldn't want to bet money that my job won't be something like that in five to 10 years time. And I think I saw a tweet today that was like, you know, your job, like, you won't be replaced by AI, you'll be replaced by someone who uses AI. And I think that's quite key that at least for now, you need people to program this, tell it what to do, write specific instructions in a certain way that are more effective than just writing the instructions generally. And I think for a while, that'll be a really, really big job. I think eventually, there'll be a point where even that isn't needed because you know the AI will just get too smart you know, to even need a helping hand. But I think for a while, yeah, that will be a job. And also, I think people who can integrate or who know how to integrate AI into a workflow, those people are going to do well as well. It is like having a personal assistant in many ways. For sure it is, and I, I'm sure it will be used to do so. Yeah, I mean, even like planning my holiday, I was thinking, how could I use this? Ask it, where are the top five places you know, there are people that are using it to do meal prep and planning. You can take a picture of your fridge and it can tell you exactly what you can make with the stock that you have. I probably sound like an octogenarian describing, yeah, this is probably what someone talking about the internet sounded like in, you know, 2000. We needed someone just to say that this is never going to take off. There's no way this will be everywhere. And that's it. Confirmed. You haven't seen as much as that with AI as you have with crypto. Yeah, and I think that's interesting given that AI is potentially more scary. I mean, you know, like we all saw the film iRobot as a kid. I think we're all aware that at some point uh, it'll probably just wipe out all of us. But humanity seems to be recklessly heading down that path regardless. 
what else is going on? What other topics are shaping the newsroom right now? There hasn't been a lot of like big things recently. As I kind of said, like layer twos are still quite important. And I mean, there's just so many developments like ZK EVMs, like all coming out, like suddenly all appearing at once. Then now you've got like all the kind of Ethereum applications now porting over to these ZK EVMs. Suddenly you're going to see like all these like whole ecosystems and you have so much data to compare like which ones are growing, which ones are going to like really take off. And, and I think it also is kind of quite exciting to see Ethereum potentially becoming much more scalable in that respect. You've still got exploits happening. I mean, today, like BitTrue, the crypto exchange was exploited for $23 million. That's, I think, the first example, first case of a crypto exchange getting hacked in a while, to be honest. I mean, that used to be very common back in the day. But you've still got kind of DeFi exploits happening. You've still got kind of consequences of DeFi exploits happening. Um, like Downmaker, there was like 600 grand sent to Tornado Cash from that exploit. The exploit was a while ago, but the kind of movements moved today. Obviously, you know, we just had the Euler funds got kind of sent back to people with some people making a profit from that hack that happened the other day. So there's still like a lot of danger, board apes getting stolen. There's still a relatively kind of dangerous space. But there are, I think, seeing some improvements in kind of transparency and people kind of responding to these issues. Just waiting for the devs to do something. Yeah, yeah. When will the devs just do something? Tired of all the hacks and exploits. Yeah, I mean, it's worrying. Like at times you kind of wonder, can we get past this? Like, is there a point where this doesn't keep happening or is this just part of this kind of technology? And also, you know, once you've monetized everything, there's so many more incentives for bad activity in a way that you didn't quite have so much with the internet. Like, you know, if you think about how much spam you get from your email inbox and all of that's free, now you're looking at every potential malicious activity is monetized. Yeah. It's concerning. And each time it happens, it provides an incentive for someone else to go and it's almost an advertisement for further malicious activity of this person ran away with X million dollars. This person ran away with Y million dollars. I can do that. I'm pretty smart. And then it kind of almost creates a vicious cycle. Yeah. And one thing we're definitely seeing, particularly recently, is well, I think what the problem is a lack of bounties. And what we're seeing is hackers just saying that it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. If they see an issue, they know that there's not really often going to be a bounty for it. It's just much more effective for them to take all the money and then like just give 90% back and everyone's happy with them. They make more that way. So I think if projects have a lot bigger bounties and better kind of procedures in, in that regard, then I think that could go a long way to preventing, like incentivizing people to help protect your network and also disincentivizing attackers to do these massive hacks and take all of the value. Because, you know, it, it is relatively hard to cash out in crypto. So bad actors, I think, will in some cases prefer bounties. Although you've got some bounties that require KYC, I think I've seen recently, and I think that's not necessarily going to solve the problem. Tim Copeland, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. No problem. Pleasure to be here. Where can our listeners learn more about what you're working on? What's the story that you are tackling right now? I did an interview with Ledin yesterday where I found out how on earth they managed to survive 2022, given that all the crypto lenders blew up, were all connected with each other, and how, you know, originally their prime 
partner was Genesis, which also blew up. And I got to find the answers on how they survived through all of that, which genuinely quite impressive. That's kind of my latest story. I'm away for the next two weeks, so don't expect a lot more. But yeah, you can find me on Twitter, find me on the blog. I'm around. Perfect. All right. And The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.